This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guests today are Michael Platt, a professor of marketing, psychology, and neuroscience at Wharton and Penn, and Leslie Zane, founder of Triggers, a company that helps companies with brand building initiatives. Uh, Michael and Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Great. Uh, Michael, based on your research, uh, what drives purchasing decisions in the minds of consumers? Well, this is really something that uh, is only just beginning to be understood. So we, um, as a field, only began to really pursue the question of, of what you know, how our brains actually drive us to make any kind of economic decision. So that that question really first began to be tackled with the new field of neuroeconomics about 15 years ago, which really took the basic principles of economics and married those to neuroscience. And so we now understand quite clearly that, you know, there are these myriad, uh, you know, sensory stimuli that we, we walk into a store and you see different kinds of products that are available. Your brain has to decode what they are, any kinds of attributes uh, that are associated with them that you know from the past, like you liked this you know, brand of um, cereal better than this one, or you notice that the cost of this other one is, is less than, et cetera. And so there's a weighing up of all of those attributes, and then that is distilled into something that we call value or utility. And then typically the way we think about the way that works in the brain is much like the way economists think about it, which is there's an actual comparison of value or utility which leads to the selection of one for purchase. Um, and by and large, uh, the, the neurobiology supports that, um, you know, what we understand right now is that the neurobiology supports that very basic economic framework, which is that you take all of this stuff, all these attributes and memories, et cetera, and you boil it down into this kind of currency that is value in your brain, which drives the purchasing decision. And that's the same kind of decision as, I mean, we think in many ways, deciding to, you know, eat a donut instead of, uh, you know, eating an apple or to buy a stock instead of a bond or to vote Republican versus Democrat. And are these conscious decisions or does the subconscious play a role? It's a great question. Um, there's still a lot of debate about uh, consciousness and its role in guiding uh, human behavior. We'd like to think that we are consciously efficacious uh, in all of the things that we do, but by and large, most of the decisions we make are actually it's seemingly made beneath the level of consciousness or at least are driven by processes that don't seem to be directly informed by consciousness or will. And Leslie, you come at this from having worked with so many large companies on their brand building initiatives. What's your view about all this? Well, I totally agree with Michael um, in working with companies to change brand preference, which is what we're most often called in to do. We've become students of instinctive decision making. Um, and we see in our work that most of the brand decisions people make tend to be of that type, that instinctive type. It's kind of like the moment you're standing in the supermarket and you reach for your orange juice and you choose, let's say, Tropicana over Minute Maid. Or you're making a purchase of sneakers online and you suddenly buy Nike over Adidas. That instinctive moment you're, you're really not conscious at all of what you're doing. Something takes over. It's almost involuntary. 
And what we've sort of seen is that there's that that moment of purchase doesn't really matter very much. What matters is what is what lurks beneath the surface, way down in the subconscious. There is this sort of ecosystem of associations that's exerting the force on you and telling you what to do in that moment. And we've learned that the the brand that has the most positive associations and has the most robust network of those associations becomes the dominant instinctive choice. So, Leslie, just to dig a little bit deeper into what you just said, what are some of the factors that go into those subconscious choices that people make, even though they might seem they are very spontaneously made? But it sounds like from what you were saying that there's a lot happening under the surface. Yes. It's almost like every memory connected to a brand that's accumulated over time has become built up and almost like glued to the brand um, and and creating this, this network of, of interconnections. Those associations can be images, they can be words, they can be ideas, thoughts, impressions, first experiences, literally every single memory that you have. And it's quite fascinating to dig into that because that's actually the key to driving the growth of your brand is understanding what's in your brand network that's holding you back and what are some of the positives that you want to reinforce they are going to help you grow more. Michael, from your perspective uh, of doing research on, on these topics, what are some of the factors that go into uh, consumers' choices uh, about the kind of products that, or services that they buy most often and most frequently? Well, I mean, you know, you have to begin with identifying what your needs are and what your desires are, I think, before you even consider the, the, right. the range of options that are ahead of you. So if, you're, if you are, you know, living at the level of basic needs, I think, the, you know, the opportunities for having real, you know, a, a plethora of choices are, are kind of limited. But, uh, you know, once you go beyond that and you're awash in products and brands like we are now, we know that there are many things that are that are, are presented by brands, which are really just a symbol system for conveying aspects of the, you know, aspects of the, the quality of the goods, but also something like the trust that you might have in the quality of that brand and how, how you are connected to it. And so um, we've been really, one of the things that, that Leslie and I talked about um, in, in developing this piece uh, was some recent research that we've been doing that uh, has been looking at the emotional connections that um, you form uh, with a brand. Um, and so we've done some very recent research, which is not yet published, but um, but which suggests that different brands have different capacities to build that strong emotional, even empathetic connection with you, the same way that they, you would with another person. And so um, we found, for example, that... Um, that Apple uh, iPhone users, uh, that when we scan their brains, uh, we find evidence that uh, they respond to news about Apple in the same way they would respond to news about their best friend. So if something bad happened to Apple, they, they show evidence of pain in their brains. And if something really great happens to Apple, they show evidence of pleasure. Um, and that's, that's really interesting because when we compare that to Samsung users, we don't say anything like that. The Samsung users say, oh, yeah, I feel bad for Samsung. 
but their brains tell a very different story. And so Apple has really succeeded, and I think we're, you know, to, to many degrees aware of this, we've really succeeded in building this sense of identity with the brand, whereas I think for Samsung users, it's quite different. It's a very utilitarian purchase, and that has um, many down-the-road implications because if you are thinking about uh, brand strategy, if you are a third uh a smartphone company that wants to come into the U.S. market, target the Samsung users, right? They have absolutely no emotional connection to their brand. That, that's really fascinating, uh, given the examples of smartphones and Apple and Samsung. But let me tie this to the, 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 the piece that both of you have written for Knowledge at Wharton, where you take a product where uh, you, you begin by talking about, you know, razors, you know, a, a product that one might not imagine uh, might strike an emotional chord, uh, and and yet they were able to uh, quite successfully take on you know a very formidable brand like Gillette, and I wonder if you could you know talk through what was going on there that that allowed their users to make that emotional connection. So what's fascinating about emotional connection is that we've learned that it's not driven by being emotional, or by communicating emotion. Mm-hmm. Emotional connection is an outcome. It's what you want the consumer to feel to your brand, connect with your brand, but it's made up of all of these other elements. So what Dollar Shave Club did really well is that it accumulated all these positive associations really, really quickly. Low price was just one of them. Direct delivery was another. There were just a slew, you know, not over-engineered. And they gave a lot of negative associations to Gillette very quickly. And so when you think about it, as I've said, we're probably going to talk about the brand Connectome um, in a moment, but the brand Connectome is this sphere of positive and negative associations. For your brand to be the one that grows and takes hold of people like Dollar Shave Club super, super quickly, the brand Connectome has to grow and have lots of positive associations across many different dimensions very, very quickly. And so literally overnight in that 90-second video, they accumulated all those positive associations, making that brand take root, almost like a tree being planted in the brain and branching out and pushing all the other brands aside, including, you know, behemoths like, like Gillette. It was, you know, quite fascinating. I mean, I think one of the things that Leslie said there just struck me now, which was we were talking about the speed with which they were able to do this. And essentially what they did was they went for multiple small hits, you know, base hits that were coming very rapidly rather than that big home run pitch. And when you think about the brain processes that lead to the selection of one um, commodity over another that's driven in large measure by dopamine. And so dopamine is signaling, we know now, uh, predictions when things are better than you predicted. And sort of multiple small hits of dopamine are going to continue to reinforce the behavior that you've engaged in in a much bigger way than, say, one big hit, but then that's it, right? And then everything is as predicted. So I think the out of the gate you know, dollar shave just kind of hitting you over and over again. You know, it's value, it's cheaper, the friction is lower, et cetera. Um, that was a really, really smart strategy. So we'll come back to, uh, Leslie, what you said about the brand uh, Connectome. But before we do that, maybe we could take a step back and look talk about the human Connectome. Uh, and Michael, perhaps you could uh, explain what that is and, and uh, how it 
relates to the brain brain mapping project sure. that you've been sure. Working well, on. the human connectome, or really any brain connectome, refers to every single connection that every neuron in your brain actually makes. And this is, you know, when we think about the order of magnitude here, the, the average human brain has about 80 to 100 billion neurons in it, making about 100 trillion connections with each other. And those are just estimates. So to actually map all of those out is at present impossible um, in a human brain. But what is happening, what we can do right now is to begin by mapping some of the major connections, sort of fiber tracks that connect different parts of the brain. And we can also map out uh, areas of the brain that are active in association with different kinds of concepts like brands, but also words, etc. And you can begin to piece those things together. There is a very ambitious effort right now underway with the, the Brain Initiative um, that uh, is really trying to actually make a census of every single brain cell, every cell in the human brain, what genes it expresses, all the chemicals, et cetera, that are floating around inside of it, and how they're all connected to each other. We don't have the technology to do that yet, but it's on the way. But you can see how this, um, the connectome, which is a real thing, it's a physical thing, um, at the moment, I think the brand connectome that, w that we're talking about is, is a is sort of a metaphor, or they're a metaphor for each other. But at some point, these will come together. And in the future, we'll actually be able to map the brand connectome onto the human brain connectome. So thank you, Michael. Leslie, perhaps you could speak a little bit about the extension of what Michael was saying to branding and the brand connectome. So we thought the human connectome project was amazing. <clears throat> and we were, we were challenged in our work for clients to help them change brand preference. So we needed to figure out how do you actually explain that instinctive brand choice? We wanted to dive inside the, quote, shortcut that makes you choose one thing or another. And we learned that you can kind of dig in and explore a little piece of that giant human connectome and pull out just those associations related to particular brands. And when you do that, you, you reveal what it, the barriers are that are holding them back, the positives that are giving them strength and helping them grow. And what we, we very quickly saw was that the brands that had more positive associations than negative were growing. The brands that had a brand connectome where there was more negatives than positives were declining or shrinking. And the brands that had a kind of equal balance of positive and negative associations were stagnant and very vulnerable to competitors. So when you think about it, it's, it's really very exciting to, to think about it this way, I think, and, and hopefully it'll be helpful to your listeners to have um, almost this metaphor in your mind. You know, we think about the external marketplace as a place where everybody's competing. You're competing at the shelf. You're competing online. You're competing on Amazon. But actually, the, the true marketplace that, that is important to pay attention to is the marketplace in the subconscious, almost this parallel universe where many brand connectomes are fighting it out and trying to gain greater share of mind. The brand that has greater share of mind is the one that's going to be most purchased. Just a little while ago, Leslie, you, you referred to, the, uh, you, you gave a wonderful analogy of a tree 
and 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 the routes that it spreads. Uh, can you give me some examples of companies that are particularly particularly good at making these positive connections with consumers' memories, and others who are not so good and perhaps more vulnerable? Well, I'll, I'll give you a, a recent example um, that I, I think is in the in the news and that you would know about, which is McDonald's, which in the old days, about five years ago, was not very good at making those connections. And its brand, Connect Home, was declining. It had more negative than positive associations. There were all these viral videos that had were telling people that, you know, there's pink slime in your chicken nuggets and there's, you know, bad stuff in your beef. Um, and what they were doing to try to correct that problem was telling consumers, no, we don't have pink slime in our chicken nuggets. Well, it turned out that was the opposite of what they needed to do. All they were doing was reinforcing the negative associations. What they shifted to finally was making real food associations showing people where the food comes from, from the farm, um, you know, better beef, USDA, uh, free-range chicken, you know, all of that kind of um, new associations about real food. And their brand Connectome started to shift. Mm -hmm. And now, as you can see, they're they're having, you know, a comeback. And, of course, all-day breakfast added to that. Um, but their But their brand is getting better. Michael, any examples that you sure. could think I of? Sure. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. I think, you know, one, one thing I want to point out is is what Leslie is talking about in terms of the brand connectome. So far, most of those have been measured using uh, kind of behavioral techniques and imagery and things like that, sort of traditional marketing-based uh, approaches. And it's only been very, very recently in the last couple of years that we've been able to begin to apply neuroscience techniques to try to see whether... Um, what one can derive in terms of an analysis of a brand connectome has some sort of physical reality. And um, there, I, I mean, there are only a, a couple of studies really that have done that. I mean, one is, is one that we've done, and I'll, I'll tell you about in a second. Another is one that a colleague, uh, Ming Xu, and his, and his uh, team at uh, UC Berkeley did, which was to um, use brain imaging to look at the sort of distribution of of the sort of personality attributes that people tend to um, ascribe to brands. I mean, it's this kind of odd thing that we describe brands in the way that we, we describe people. And it turns out that when you do that, um, those brands that sort of share similar aspects of their personality activate a similar pattern of areas across your brain that are that are associated with that that sort of pattern of personalities, which I think is very very interesting. Um, we've done a, a, a kind of different. We've taken a different approach in a in a recent study where we um, looked at the pattern of activation evoked by say um, a particular category of um, commodity like car. And then we looked at different brands of cars. So how does your brain you know, respond to just car? And how, does, how do you see like Ford, Chevy, BMW, et cetera? And what we find is that um, those brands that have a, evoke a more, an activation pattern that's more similar to the overall category type car um, are the ones that are, uh, have the greatest market share. So, uh, and you see that that's the more similar that that is across people the better those brands actually do. And in fact, you can then begin to forecast how you can extend that brand or generalize to a different product category, say computer, uh, from those patterns of activation. So it's early on, but uh, I think it's really, really intriguing that, um, that we can now take 
the the um, the kind of analysis that's been applied through imagery and through behavioral report and things like that, and bring that into the brain to identify and uncover really that that you know the subconscious kind of tree and its roots that Leslie's been talking about, um, and that really does have a physical reality uh, in people's brains. Well, I'm very glad you mentioned cars and you also mentioned McDonald's because one of the things that struck me as I was reading your piece is that so many companies are now trying to build their brands globally. And when you think about positive associations and emotional reactions, have you found through your research or through your experience that the same factors you know, operate across different cultures? Uh, or does something get lost in translation? And, and, and what are some of the implications for companies? I think that... Um from a global brand standpoint, we're seeing more convergence than we are seeing divergence. Mm -hmm. And so the global marketing campaigns that companies do to build these businesses, assuming that they do a good job of keeping those those brands healthy and uh, reinforcing all the right messages to keep them positive, we see great similarity from, from region to region and from country to country. There are some cultural differences that we need to pay attention to. But it is it is possible for the most part to have a global campaign. What Michael was talking about is the idea of convergence, that there's we're seeing this great convergence of what a brand stands for from one brain to another. And it's remarkable that you can talk to two separate people, they can play back the same personality attributes about a brand. And what that suggests um, is, is actually an interesting concern, which is as we go more and more to AI and segmenting the world into smaller and smaller pieces, we actually might be working against ourselves in terms of building brands because we want a brand to stand. That's the definition of a brand, that it stands for the same things for most people. And if we have it take it down to the individual, for example then we may start having issues and, and, and denigrating the brand instead of building it. That's really interesting. Michael, I mean, I, I, mean I, I, I agree with what Leslie said. I think that um, one thing that is clear from, from many people's work is that uh, we don't know enough about cross-cultural differences in the way that people, people's brains process information. Some things seem to be very, very similar, and certainly the circuits are possessed by every single human being, but the culture you grow up in is going to shape the way that you process information. The convergence that I think we're seeing that Leslie talked about is maybe driven as much by the kind of globalization of brands themselves, right, that are actually beginning to train people's brains, right, to instruct them and to make them more similar in the way they process information. So I think if you did, if we were to do a similar analysis 10, 15, 20 years ago, it might look very different. And 10 years hence, um, we may see even greater uh, convergence. Yeah, there is so much hype that one hears about AI and, and, and big data analytics and the ability to sort of micro-target, you know, hyper-local uh, you know, uh, create hyperlocal strategies uh, that are highly personalized. It sounds from what you're saying that these could be counterproductive. Is that and, and so? What are some of the mistakes that companies may make in this regard? Well, I think that if you're trying to understand where somebody bought something last, how long they stayed on this portal, um, how many seconds do they 
spend with this uh, or that website. That kind of individualization is really helpful for media planning and for reaching people. But I think we need to separate when we're talking about brand messaging. There we should really be trying to spend as much time as possible reinforcing a similar set of themes. I mean, I, well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, but I'm just kind of, you know, as I think a little bit more deeply about it while, while sitting in this chair, it's interesting to um, consider different demographics as well. So there, there are some demographics, uh, you know, millennials, uh, you know, Gen X or younger, where, um, you know, especially very urban um, populations where the dynamic, they're so dynamic and they're changing so rapidly that um, kind of, it's hard to predict, right? Even if you were to hyper-personalize, um, it, it's hard to know how you would really be able to track them. You're always one step behind. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're kind of looking at middle America, if you're selling um, you know, M&Ms or Hershey bars uh, in Missouri or western Pennsylvania, um, I think those are, you know, those are communities and those are cultures where there's often, you know, that the, are not as as dynamically changing. And there's going to be that that highly resonant brand uh, image and brand, um, you know, message that is is not going to change. And, and it shouldn't change because it means the same thing to those people as it did, did mean 20 years ago. What, what you both are saying reminds me of a, of a, of a talk that... Uh Warren Buffett gave at Wharton when he was here a few years ago. And one of the things I still remember he said was that uh, share of wallet follows share of mind. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I was wondering what are some of the implications of what you are saying uh, for companies that want to get that share of mind? What, what, what should they be doing? Um, I think there are two things, first of all. In the world of marketing, we have all been taught a particular principle. Ever since the Trout and Rees book came out in 1980, Positioning a Battle for Your Mind, I mean, that became like the Bible mm -hmm. to me as a marketer. Mm -hmm. And what that taught you was that your brand had to stand for one thing and one thing only. Um, Volvo equals sa safety, Chevy truck equals rugged. And what we now know is that 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 point of view, while it's true that brands definitely have stakeout territory in the mind, it, that is a, a limitation that I think is counterproductive. You do not want your brand to stand for one thing. You want your brand to stand for tons of things, have robust, lots of neural connections, lots of positive associations. Every single agency meeting I've ever been in since I'm, you know, a, a, an assistant brand manager, um, inside the, the, the blue chip marketers, they would tell us, you can only stand for one thing. And that actually is a recipe for shrinking your brand. Mm -hmm. So one, the first thing I would say is um, we need to let go of some marketing principles that we've been taught um, and, and rethink them. And, and the first one is you need to have lots of positive associations because that's the one, the brand that becomes the dominant instinctive choice. And then the second thing I would say is that you actually need to keep nurturing this brand connectome and, and pay as much attention to it, quite frankly, as much attention as you do to managing your P&L. Michael, your, your thoughts on how companies can improve their share of mind? <laughs> I, I think what Leslie said is, um, is really good advice. I mean, the only other thing that I would think about, and I don't know what 
you know, what the strategy here would be. But it's important to recognize that um, there are real physical limitations on the way our brains process information. And um, what that means is that in practice, uh, more options, more choices make decisions more difficult and people tend to make more errors and they take less they take longer time to make those choices and they feel worse about them so if you can kind of be first in market or if you can really help to you know maybe that means um, buying up some of the competition or driving them out I mean I mean these are obviously you know sort of first principles but these are you know, this this limitation on our ability to process information is not just an irrationality of human psychology it really arises from the the, the molecular literally the molecular constraints on the way that brains the limitations they have in terms of processing information i have one last question for each of you and that is if you were to imagine that in this room right now with us there are CEOs and chief marketing officers and they want one piece of advice from each of you about how can we become better at building our brands. What would you tell them? Well, I'd tell them to hire us and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get right back to you. <laughs> I would say that um, they should realize that brand associations and brand image is re remarkably dynamic. You're not stuck with the brand that you have. Your brand can change. Our brains are learning machines. And so all you need to do is really understand what's inside there. And you can add and change and transform it and nurture it so that it, it, does, it does better. Um, and so there is absolutely untapped growth potential for every single business. That's an incredibly optimistic message to be told. Every single brand at every stage of the life cycle can grow more. It's just a matter of unleashing that growth from within. Leslie, Michael, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a thank pleasure. Thank you, Michael. This was Thanks, fun. <laughs> For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.